This is the Halloween Unleashed Podcast, featuring the cutting room floor. And now, here are your hosts for the week. Welcome, everybody, to a special episode of Halloween Unleashed. I am Chris Morgan, joined by Dylan Cloud. Dylan, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Could not be better. Um, today, you know, we are going to get to my interview with uh, part one of several. And I talked to Dan Farrens in this interview. Originally, I thought it was going to be right around an hour. And it ended up being three hours and 37 minutes. And it could have been five hours and 37 minutes. Is there anything that you want to say? Well, without getting too much into it, because I know we're going to come back in the middle, I, it, it, the passion that he showed, and I, and I just have to ask you before I get into this, how much did you pay Dan Ferens to say that he that he's your friend? Oh, yeah. I, I, gosh, man, I can't even count the dollar bills I had to go steal from the bank. Uh, <laughs> he was very influential in my life um, in the last eight years, and I would not have gotten as far as I did without him. But there's a lot of people that, that have said, and I quote, that I use Dan Farron's as a way to make my story about that 2018 contribution or potential contribution to make it seem more truthful than it is. And it's, that's extremely disrespectful and hurtful. And you will hear straight from Dan himself, you know, that, you know, we are friends, we are colleagues. He is somebody I look up to and that I respect and that I admire. And, um, he'll tell you in his own words, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but he'll tell you in his own words you know, throughout this interview, you know, what, what our friendship has been. So he's helped me. I've helped him along, you know, along the way he's helped me far more than I could ever dream of helping him. But, you know, um, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but it's been so, so surreal to have these opportunities. Um, you know, and that's the thing is, you know, from listening to this first part, I, I went in very excited you know, because I'm sure Dan gets a lot of flack about the movie, you know, for things that he couldn't control, which we'll get into a little bit more later. But his passion for the genre, the project, and just filmmaking in general just shines through so much. And I'm excited to see or to hear what his original vision was. Because for all of its faults, Halloween 6, and it's one of the last of the pre Rob Zombie era, actually, it's the last one that I saw. You know, before 2007, it was the last one because, you know, it didn't come on TV for years. And I love it. You know, it's got its flaws for sure. You know, it's like The Crow. It was just a – the production was a mess from start to finish. But I think given all that, what made it to screen was still pretty amazing. It was. And the the other thing I will add and then we'll get to the interview with Dan is – I, I wanted this interview to be something bigger than just a Halloween 6 interview that he's talked about ad nauseum. So I wanted it to be deeper. I wanted the research to be there. I wanted to talk about his career and his, like you just mentioned, his love as a filmmaker first and foremost. To really paint the picture of who the man is versus what people's opinion of the man is because of all the controversies in Halloween six 
and I know I'm jumping ahead, but you know, you'll hear there's a lot of things in, that made it to screen that he had no involvement with. He just had the writing credit because a lot of his original stuff didn't make it. Yeah, I can't wait to see what he, well, you know, what he put in there and what was in there that didn't come from him. Right on. Well, we are going to get uh, to part one with Dan Farrens, and then we'll be back in a little while to just touch base with everybody and just recap a little bit. So welcome to Halloween Unleashed. I am Chris Morgan, the host, and this week I have a very, very special guest. I'm traveling back into my 17-year-old self, and I'm interviewing someone that I consider a friend and someone I look up to and someone I, I spent years wanting to get to know, and I've, I've done that over the last eight years, the writer of Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, and owner of Panic Productions, Daniel Farrens. Daniel, how's everything going? Things are going pretty well, Chris. Thanks for having me. I know we've been trying to make this happen for a while, so thank you for being persistent and uh, following up with me and you know finding time in our, our schedules to do it. But I'm glad to finally get this uh, get this on the road because it's uh, it, was, it always seems to be so many questions about this movie all these years later. So it's exciting oh. that uh, you get to sit and chat about it. Absolutely. And uh, d- doing our research, I, I, I hope I can stump you a little bit. That, that was kind of my goal. And uh, but doing, <laughs> <Probably will. laughs> but doing my research on you, man, I mean, you've got so many credits uh, since that film that it, it would be almost um, inappropriate of me not to just highlight some of the like some of the things that you've worked on. I mean, you have you have your own production company now, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep, I do. And can you tell us all what uh, what that is and how that started? Yeah, I mean, it, it started off as, you know, as often when, when you're a writer in the film industry or director, producer, uh, they call the above the line crew. You know, you sort of, you, you, you start a company that's kind of, you know, uh, they call kind of a, like a loan out for your, your talent services. So it started as kind of that. It's just a sort of a name for, you know, for me. Uh, but since then, you know, I started it in, into the producing end of things and, um so that became kind of its own little production entity. Things like when we we started with these uh, retrospective documentaries, which were probably some of the most fun times I've ever had on any project because they were just made so, you know, with such a, a passionate group of people. And I think that's what made those so special. And I think that fans responded to them so positively were uh, we did uh, Never Sleep Again, the Elm Street Legacy, which, you know, was the, a four hour retrospective on the making of the Elm Street series. And, you know, just getting to meet everybody involved with that franchise, as well as certainly, most importantly, you know, the late, great Wes Craven, who's just was a remarkable talent, but also just an incredible person. So just being able to spend some time with him. Anyway, but the the company sort of was formed um, or sort of grew out of my producing side of of the business. And I did a few features, including um, The Haunting in Connecticut, which was pretty successful at the box office, as well as... uh, um, several other films, feature films, um, some television projects. So yeah, it just kind of became this name that I continue to use. Um, and that's still going strong. So it's, 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 that's something I'm just grateful for that, you know, a movie that launched my career, which was Halloween six. I have not only is there still a fan base, which is surprising to me, but, um, it's, it's kind of an emotional thing for me too, because it meant so much to me. And, um, that all these years later that it's still being discussed, but, but that it was, 
it was the movie that that, that changed my life. You know? Well, that's and, that's what they say is like if you can get a foot in the door somehow, and then you can make it happen from from there. The really the success or failure or whatever of a particular film does not divide does not define your career because there there are tons of opportunities and there's a lot of there's a lot that goes into making a film so just being able yeah. to get into that circle probably helped you a lot just just from that perspective it did i mean it immediately you know when i did the movie and i'm sure you have questions about the, or the beginning of it all but you know i didn't even oh, have yeah. an agent you know at the time so just getting my foot in the door at all was you know sort of a feat that <laughs> i think you know being as young as i was i think i didn't realize how impossible that was uh, yeah we'll but, we'll we'll definitely yeah. get there for sure but uh, a sure. co- couple things I, I did want to touch on is yeah you brought up uh the you know the the different things with the different uh, franchises with the documentaries i've watched every single one of them i'll be honest with you i watched the scream inside story um when it came out and to be honest with you i never knew and as long as i've known you i never knew that you had anything to do with that so doing my research and finding that i was like man that is like one of my favorite documentaries that was made on one of the horror franchises and someone that i've always looked up to and that i consider a friend is is the director of it which was oh, really cool well, thank you yeah that was that was one that that kind of was born out of our um success in a way with the the elm street documentary and um we were approached by bio channel to do something else um and so naturally we thought of scream because scream 4 was on the horizon we had already made contact with wes you know um it it just sort of made sense and it sort of happened rather quickly and we had a lot of fun doing i have to give a lot of credit to to um um, tommy hudson who has worked with me on all of those shows and and has brought his incredible passion knowledge of those franchises to bear on each one of them as well. So um, it was always a team effort. I don't take credit for those shows because it was <laughs> so much, you know, it feels Andrew Cash who edited the Elm Street one and Luke Raffalowski also worked on the Friday the 13th one. We just, we you, you become this weird film family, but it was even more than that with those shows because they were so small and made being made by fans for fans mm-hmm. that we were just like a bunch of kids who were, so excited to tell the story and oh you know we found this photo that's never been seen before or this film clip that somebody had in their garage so all of that kind of was it was really just more than anything i've ever done those were made out of pure passion but well you. you could you could definitely tell uh all of the love and you know you and i uh lightly met in 2012 when when i reached out to ask for a signature stamp on something special i was doing and you know a friendship kind of breeded out of that and yeah because of you you've you know you've gotten me further in the halloween franchise than probably most fans would ever dream of and just that just the fact that you went to bat for me the way you did and you know and all that i mean i am I have more respect and more love for you than uh, than you'll ever know, and I thank uh, you. Thank then, you, Chris. Now, you're a great guy too, and I love your the work that you've done in the mass and the the passion that you show is is what I kind of it reminds me a lot of how when I started off, you know, that it was it was those details, it was that attention to detail, it was the getting the little things right that that you know sets the the fan base apart from just another you know, filmmaker who just comes in and takes a job. And, um, sure. you know, I really, you know, despite some of the 
questionable things in the final product, I really fought hard as young as I was to try to bring back um, some of the lore of the of the first film and, and even the first two films and, and connect those dots with, you know, the ones that preceded mine. But anyway, but yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And, 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 and right back at you. <laughs> yeah, man. And, and I think it was the Crystal Lake Memories uh, documentary that you did that uh, did, didn't you use um, a couple pictures of my work in that documentary? Cause I had several people reach out to me and say, Hey, is, you know, is this true that he used your, your mask? And I said, Yep. <laughs> that, yep. That's me. We did. We did. Cause we needed some, some good photos of, you know, the shape that weren't copyright protected. Um, and you were kind enough just to, you know, send me some, some photos as I recall, it's, it's going back a ways, but I, I do remember that we, I think we talked about it. Yep. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, you know, so be- before we get into the main trunk of today's episode, I did just want to, uh, to touch base. You were born um, in Providence, Rhode Island, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And when did you get out to California? Because it says that you graduated in 87 at Santa Rosa <laughs> High School. So when did you get out there? Well, um, we kind of did this triangular thing, my family. So we, we moved to California when I was seven years old and we moved to Los Angeles. And we lived in L.A. for about five years until I was about to hit junior high. And then the mother said, nope, not going to be living here when you guys are teenagers. So off we went to a small town in Northern California called Santa Rosa, which is talk about coming full circle. Santa Rosa High School, where I graduated from, was supposed to have been the location for Scream. Wow. Uh, yeah. A couple years after I graduated, a few years um, and it begat this giant controversy up there. So um, it was interesting. You brought up that show with the scream inside story we did. I actually went back to my own high school to interview the school board members who had I remember that. Told, yeah, told Wes that he couldn't shoot there. But it, I got the I got the welcome committee to me because I was an alumni, you know. And I just said, you know, you know that I was the kid that was making these gory movies as a student here. And you guys didn't have any problem with that. And then Wes Craven comes to make his scary movie, and it was called that at the time, um, and bringing a whole lot of money to the community and to the school, and you guys chased him out. And I think they were a little embarrassed about that now. Wow. So, but it was interesting going to my own, you know, school and showing people my locker. Uh, (laughs) We're making basically a documentary saying this school district sucks. (laughs) (laughs) But... This, again, one of those weird, you know, coming full circle moments, you know, in life that, uh, but yeah, so I, I grew up in, in Santa Rosa, graduated high school. And then shortly after I made my way back to LA and, and started, you know, as a very young, you know, wide eyed, you know, writer and filmmaker to just start doing what I wanted to do down here. I mean, I didn't, I actually didn't go to film school. That was going to be my, my, my next question is like, you know, you, you graduated in 87 and then you, you know, we're, we're about to jump into like the main trunk here, but I mean, you started doing your first pitch with Mustafa in 1990. So you were yeah. like only to like 20, 20, 21 years old at that time. So I was about to ask, yeah. were you in, were you in college at that time? And you know, like what, what had you written at that point? Were you writing all through high school? You know, give me a little background on, info on that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had been running. I, I, you know, somebody just asked me yesterday, like, when did you start? And I was like, I don't remember when I didn't, you know, <laughs> I was that, you know, geeky kid who, you know, I was obsessed with Star Wars and all the things that we, you know, oh, yeah. people were obsessed with back in those days and um, still are. 
but um, that was, you know, my imagination was always kind of running crazy even as a, as a kid and, and telling stories and doing backyard plays to and graduating to Super 8 films um, and then video cameras. That was all part of who I was growing up. It's funny because I would make my own, when, when, when the horror genre hit me hard, like a freight train, and that was something that I became so, um, you know, fascinated by, enamored by, then I started, like junior high age, started making these like, you know, kind of semi-horror, semi-comedy movies with titles like Halloween Party the Halloween massacre, the Halloween. <laughs> so, so I had these movies that I, and I would recruit all the kids in school. And it was kind of my way of making friends. You know, I was a little shy and a little, you know, not one of the cool kids. So I, I, I kind of recruited people and people wanted to be in them. So of course, that's how I started was making, you know, what they didn't call it fan films back then, but that's what they were. Sure. Um, and I would make these movies. And, and so again, you know, I, you know, cut to, you know, 10 years after high school and I'd just done Halloween and, and no one was surprised that I was at the, you know, I went to one of my first reunion at high school, my high school reunion and nobody there was, they're like, of course, of course you did. <laughs> you were always going to do that. So um, maybe there was a little bit of, you know, fate involved, but I think it was also just being so myopic and not, there wasn't in my mind any other choice of what I was, what career path I would follow. Um what? That's awesome, yeah. man. And and you know, like when I was going through making uh, making films and and everything, going through film school, like I had people <laughs> say, "Yeah, you know, you you make stuff like the Blair Witch Project because that was big at the time." And I'm like, I'm like, mm -hmm. really? No, it's not like that at all, you know. But okay, you know. But that's that's what was out at the time, and people were just trying to make a connection. Did you have a film like that that people were like, oh, you're making a film like such and such? You mean before I did Halloween? Is that? What oh yeah, yeah, or? yeah. Like when back oh. back when you were doing all your Super Eight films and your and your fan films well, and stuff. Everything I was doing was just kind of in a weird way, like copying what I had seen. You know, I remember making my version of When a Stranger Calls, or I was, you know, I was learning how to put a shot together. I was learning how to kind of tell a story, but I was doing it by emulating what, what I saw. So I would do like my own sequel to something <laughs> or, or kind of like I would do almost do these almost uh, satirical versions of horror films. That's awesome. I figured, you know, like if it's too violent, then they're going to get mad at me. You know, I can't make this too. So I have to make it a little silly, you know? So I'm like, the killings would be things like he'd stuff food down some girl's mouth or, you know, <laughs> love it. I never, none of the violence was sort of innocuous. It was, it wasn't like sure. bad, you know, you know, I didn't make like really gory, you know, serious horror films. I think they were a little silly. And, um, I, I wish yeah. you were allowed to, uh, to watch my fan sequels to Halloween six. Cause I, I did two. Oh my I God. Did, I, That's I, awesome. I, I, I think I think he would appreciate what I did with your characters um, oh, and cool. um, how I kind of brought everything full circle, then closed out the entire story because obviously we never got a follow up. So I'm like, I don't want to be that guy that just makes a makes a reboot or or whatever of the of, of the first two or whatever. I was like, we never got a follow up to Halloween six. That was obviously that was the first Halloween I saw in theaters. So I was like, I want to do that. 
and it just so happened that uh, during the Halloween 30th anniversary out in Pasadena that they were going to have a fan film contest. And so I called mine Halloween H3O, which was a direct sequel to Halloween 6. And it deals with with Danny as an adult, you know, and how he had to, you know, take take all this. And, you know, we we pretend that H2O did exist, but Resurrection did not. And uh, basically, we, we yeah. So anyway. Um, we're going to dive into Halloween six now. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I got some of your early writing credits, but, um, ultimately, how did you get involved initially with Mustafa Akkad in 1990 for a potential Halloween six job? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, it just, there's so many, it feels like there's so many, you know, avenues to that story, but let me see if I can just pick one and, and go with that. Um, so as I said, I was, you know, sort of a new kid in town and, um, writing spec scripts and not, not Halloween movies. I think a lot of people have this misconception that I wrote a Halloween script on spec, you know, just on my own time and, you know, my own, you know, just went with my own idea and said, submitted that and they, they, they bought it, but that's, that's not at all what happened. In fact, I, I had written a spec script, just a, a horror script that had made its way around just, again, I didn't have an agent or even an attorney or anything like that at the time, but I had a couple connections. Um, one of whom was, um, a producer who will always be close to my heart because he's <laughs> the first Hollywood producer that ever paid any attention to me. I, when I was 14, still living in Northern California and obsessed with these films, um, I wrote a letter to Frank Mancuso Jr., who was known to the Friday the 13th fans as kind of the Mustafa. He was the the godfather of the series in a way. He he kind of been there through all the sequels, and mm-hmm. uh, he 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 his father was you know it was only a Hollywood you know not so much royalty but certainly you know power power people. Um, Frank Senior was the was the CEO I believe of Paramount Pictures at that time, so. His son, Frank Jr., sort of took the reins of this franchise of Friday the 13th that nobody really probably cared about. <laughs> so, so that became Frank's thing. But anyway, so I wrote him a letter when I was a kid, and he wrote back to me. And in the letter, he, which I still have um, framed, he wrote to me that he couldn't believe this was from somebody my age because it was the writing of it was better than people 20 years older than me and encouraging me to keep pursuing my dream and there's always enough room for talented people in in the film industry and it just he opened up the doors if not literally then certainly figuratively to me um and that was something that just felt like i was anointed at that time and he and i kept up uh, our connection with each other and when i moved to la he got me my first pitch meeting uh which i didn't sell but it was uh to write an episode of of the friday the 13th uh Still begotten in some circles, although some people love it, um, the TV show that was going on at that time. Um, there was a TV show called Friday the 13th that had nothing to do with the films, but um, but because Frank, you know, kind of took me a weird in a weird way under his wing, he gave me that opportunity so to go in and pitch, uh, which was a huge deal for me. But that kind of opened up a couple doors, so I knew there were and there were some other producers that I had made contact with when I when I moved here. It wasn't easy like today where you can just find somebody on, you know, social media or uh, LinkedIn or things like none of that existed. So sure. it was just sure. you know, there was a Hollywood creative directory and you kind of, you know, send letters <laughs> to people who you wanted to co- contact or make contact with. Anyway, so cutting to the Mustafa thing, um 
and meeting him for the first time, it it was that uh, the spec script that I had, and I it was after Halloween Five had come out, mm-hmm. and I remember vividly walking out of the movie with two very close friends of mine, and saying to them in the lobby of the theater, "I'm going to write Halloween Six. <laughs> wow. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick timeout. Uh, I told you that we would be back in just a little while. We will get back to our part one episode, our part one interview with Daniel Ferens. Um, but Dylan, you know, we're about at the halfway point, maybe a few minutes extra, a few minutes before. What have you thought so far? First off, uh, he sounds so young, and I know he's you know probably about 10, 15 years older than you. He, he sounds so young and youthful and vibrant. You know, his passion is definitely keeping him young. But just in this first half of this, what's going to be a very you know long series of episodes, it's so much that I didn't even know that he had to do. You know, because I don't, I didn't know a lot about him. You know, I didn't know about all these biopics that he made, Crystal Lake Memories and The Scream and The Nightmare on Elm Street and all these other things. That he's – and what I would say he's done for the community because you know, all these things, you know, all the horror fans look at them as these kind of ultimate collections of knowledge. You know, and, they, and, they, and they get things wrong in some places you know, you know, and everyone's human has their faults and that, those things will happen when you have a four-hour documentary. But all these other connections to horror that he had that like going to the high school that Scream was supposed to be shot at and then coming back in, in – in, I don't know what the right word for this is, but for lack of a better term, shaming them for, you know, the hypocrisy and, you know, not letting them shoot there, which, you know, in him talking about all those low budget, you know, horror spoofs that he made. I mean, it's incredible what he's done in the hobby. And I, you know, I need to look more into things that he's done and watch some of these other um, documentaries that I didn't get to watch because especially for guys like Wes Craven who aren't around anymore. Those nightmare and scream documentaries are one of those things that definitely help preserve his legacy. Yeah, my my plan was was to make an entire episode out of just that, and uh, before we ever got to Halloween, because the way I looked at it and uh, the way I looked at this interview when I sort of mapped this out was I want it to be sectional, so it it really paints a picture of here's who the man is, then. Like, this is what he's doing. This is where he's at. This is where he started. This is what he had to go through. This is what it was like to even get a pitch meeting. This is what it was like when he's growing up as a fan, going into this pitch meeting, getting getting this, this chance to write part six. I mean, it's just... And then what I wanted to lead that into was I wanted to take the audience and paint a picture of what it was like. Like if you were able to get in Doc Brown's time machine and vividly go back to October of 94 when they started filming, and even before then, what all that was like, and vividly be able to put yourself in the scene like you were a fly on the wall in all these situations. And I think as we go... it. You're, you're definitely going to see that for sure. Oh, yeah. And, and I was astonished to find out that, you know, how quickly they started to attempt to put H6 into production. You know, it was early as 1990. Just giving, you know, five was not as successful as four. So, but for them to still try to jump into six so quickly, and I would really, 
would love to know what the delay was and maybe I'm sure we'll get into that in, in, in future um, episodes uh, or parts of this interview but just to see about that and and I would love man I would kill to just to have five minutes with that Halloween Bible that he assembled um, and, you know and that's kind of what I think the lost art of unknowns in Hollywood has become is everything's you know about formulaic and things and they don't you know, I mean, how what's the likelihood of, of in 2020 of, you know, Dan Farron's story of Halloween six happening? You know, no one's going to walk in and just pitch as a 20 year old pitch something to to Blumhouse and, and, and get the script for 2018, you know, because they only look at big names. So, you know, him having the gumption in, in the uh, in the foresight just to kind of put all this together and be so prepared and have this ultimate guy, which. <laughs> would later be, you know, the you that Mustafa and Malik would keep, you know, just just that's just unreal, and and I, I really wish he could have been a part of more than just Halloween Six because that might have been a saving grace for the franchise. In one of the final parts, and I don't want to jump ahead, one of the questions is asked, you know, has he ever been asked to come back, and he he answers that so. Um, there's, trust me, man, there's a lot of meat on this bone and we're just getting started. So do you have anything else or do you want to get back to the interview? No, let's not keep the people waiting. All right. Well, you're going to get the rest of part one this week. And obviously, like I said, part two next week and however many parts are going to be after that. But let's get back to the interview that I conducted last week with Daniel Ferens, and we'll be back at the end of the show to, uh, recap everything. <laughs> yeah, I, de- I declared it at that moment. I'm, I'm like, I know it, I, I'm going to do this next one. I'm going to do that. And wow. so I, and I don't remember what the very, very first step was, but I know that I got in touch with um, most of us uh, production company, Trankus International Films. Um, and I remember they were on Sunset Boulevard at the time. And I sent a letter to Ramsey Thomas, who was the, producer of, of the fifth movie. Yep. And he, he had office space at most of his, you know, at Trankus, which was kind of a, a, sort of its own distribution company at the time, as I recall, it was called Galaxy. Yes. Galaxy, Galaxy Films. Had, yeah. Yeah. And they had, most of it was kind of becoming like his own mini studio, mini distribution studio at the time. So he was, it was, I always said, and now I could caught his son and I always like, you know, if, 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 if Mustafa had sort of done things a little bit differently or made some other acquisitions of different films a little bit different, I actually think that, 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 that studio could have been like another new line. Like he was kind of on the path to that. I always um, wondered why that didn't happen, but that makes total sense. What you just said. Yeah. So four, four was very successful movie, you know, and it, it sort of opened the world to, you know, him doing, doing other films and, 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 and just not only just producing, but also as a distribution company so anyway so he did have these these two kind of sister companies one being Trankus, which was on the production end and then galaxy that handled the distribution for i think it was four and five and i remember so i sent i sent a letter to ramsey and um saying would you read a script of mine and he said sure and then i got a i I think i got a phone call from him first and he said send it over Uh, we're looking for writers for halloween six we're gonna make it right right away like it was gonna go into production in months so yeah, he's like, we're talking to writers. Send send what? Send me something. So I sent him the script, which was not a Halloween script or even a Friday the Thirteenth script. It was a it was a horror script. And he read it quickly because I got a call. I want to say within the week, 
And he said, I really like this. I think this is great. I want to introduce you to Mr. Valkad. So come in, you know, and here he gave me a date, you know, and I want to say it was, you know, maybe two weeks down the road. And of course I'm, you know, young as I was, I was freaking out. (laughs) Oh my God. It's, you know, this is real. Um, yeah, I so mean, I just, stand- just, just, just to interject there, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you sure, off, no, but no, no, I mean, please. you know, just, just what you said there about being able to submit a spec script that had nothing to do with the series at all that you mm-hmm. just wanted them to read. Try getting mm-hmm. that done in the year 2020. I mean, you got to be have right. representatives, and then they yeah. have to know your your yeah. work, and then yeah. somebody's. I mean, you gotta you gotta summon the invisible swordsmen and all that stuff. I mean, is that is that right. about correct about in in 2020? It is, but it was then too. I mean, I'm not gonna say that it, you didn't need an agent. You kind of did, um, but. The thing was, is I think, again, kind of like the letter that I wrote to Frank Mancuso, I think the way I approached them was so businesslike. You know, I didn't write a fan letter. I wrote a business letter. I wrote a letter about, you know, it wasn't like, I love these movies. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pitch myself that way. I pitched myself as a, as a professional writer, as someone with a, a, a hold on, you know, or knowledge of the genre, a knowledge of the series. Um, certainly wanted to impart my passion, but I didn't write it in a fan like way, you know, and it was typed and it was written professionally. The formatting was good. You know, <laughs> it looked like a business letter. I, I mean, I remember that it was very, 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 um, aware of the fact that I need to present myself as a professional as young as then, I was. Then they probably, I mean, I mean, obviously they didn't say, well, how, how old are you? But, you know, they probably felt when they got that letter that you were somebody that was wise. They probably did. I don't think I mentioned yeah. that I was, you know, 20. Or yeah, anything. exactly. So, um, that no, I don't think so. And I think when I walked in the room two weeks later, I think they were maybe a little like, who's this kid? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this? exactly. Um, right. And literally, and, um, but anyway, so, so after I got the call and I, I kind of, you know, went into that, like, you know, Kind of adrenaline fueled. Oh my God, I got to be prepared, and I, you know, against all, you know, odds, costs, whatever, I'm going to be the guy to 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 get this. So I really went in with like guns a blazing. So I, I spent the next couple of weeks kind of compiling this book. Um, I call it kind of like a bible yeah. uh, of the Halloween series. And I've talked about this a lot of times, but. Um, I just took every bit of knowledge that was either in my head or from research I had done that kind of told the story. I remember I made a timeline. I made a family tree, the Strodes, the Myers, the the whole thing. It was all like laid out in this kind of book uh, with a binder. And then I had the title emblazoned on it. I had a a graphic designer do the Halloween 666 logo with the thorn symbol. We all know what that is now. Um, kind of replacing the A in Halloween, and and I created that that kind of logo for the movie, and, and I put it on there, and it was this black binder, I remember, and it was full of just stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. Be, be, before we talk about this meeting, um, yeah. did you did you know kind of a direction that they wanted to go with the six film, or is it just like, hey, I just got done watching Halloween five, I've been thinking about it, and this is how I would do it, and I'm just going to go in and pitch how I would do it. How how was that? I mean. Um, they gave me no, nothing that I knew nothing about what their intentions were. Nothing. So you had Just, to really nail We're going to make a six, right? We're going to make this, we're going to make a Halloween six. We're going to make it right away. We need somebody to write it. That's all I knew. Wow. 
I mean, talk, uh, there was no, talking there was about no, going in blind. Any, yeah, oh, I went in blind. I, I, and they weren't sharing. You know, they, they were like, and I wasn't even told necessarily to come in with a take, but I wanted to be as prepared as I could in the meeting. And I, so I remember, you know, putting my little, you know, research thing, my Bible together and, you know, dressing up and probably inappropriately. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know. Um, what did that look like, by the way? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I, I just want to say, like, I'm probably, I came in with, like, a nice shirt and a tie, which a writer would never wear. But I think I, think I remember dressing, you know, a little more formally. Because, again, you're so young you want, and you want to be taken seriously. So I think I, I probably appearance, overdressed yeah. for the occasion, you know, like trying to present myself as, like, this little businessman. Um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. that. Well, I mean, it just, I wouldn't do that now. I mean, you're lucky if you get me to yeah. <laughs> Sure. A good pair of shoes when well, I, I think you're I think you're in a lot different spot than you were in 1990. We'll just we'll just say that a little bit. So get us. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Get us to the meeting. Like what what was mm-hmm. Mustafa like? And, you know, sure. when and where did you meet him? And mm-hmm. how nervous well, were one, you? Um, well, that was going to be my first point. I was like, I wasn't just nervous. I was absolutely like gobsmacked and terrified that that that's that. Frozen with fear is the best way I can describe it. So, so how did you perform? This is probably visibly shaking. I mean, apparently, I mean, I performed, but here's how the meeting went. And I'll, I'll give you okay. the, the quick sure. rundown because there's not much to tell you. So I walked in and, and Ramsey greeted me and he was nice. Um, and I remember going to his office, which was kind of on the other side of this suite of, of offices that Galaxy had um, in this building on Sunset Boulevard. And there was a hamburger hamlet in the lobby. I remember that. Um and which is funny because that's hamburger Hamlet is where I know John Carpenter said he met Donald Pleasant. So I was like, Oh, this has to be kids met. This is maybe this is good. <laughs> so, um, that being said, so I, I get kind of whisked into Ramsey's office and he's very casual, very, you know, just like, yeah, yeah. Just go in there and tell him your ideas. And I think this is really good. And I think he'd be good for this. Um, and, but the one thing I remember about his office was there was this giant standee of Halloween five sitting in standing in his office one of those like things they put in the lobby of the theater mm-hmm. so and there's little daniel harris with the knife and the, you know <laughs> so i was like oh my god this these are the people that really make halloween um anyway then, so that was and then you saw the man with the pipe <laughs> i did and i remember going into his office um and sitting in front of his desk and i i all I, my my real memory of it was he just listen to what I had to say. And I think I stammered a lot because I didn't know, you know, you don't almost know where to begin. And, you know, my heart was thumping in my chest. And I remember just telling him what I thought and how I thought it could go forward. Um, Wasn't a detailed kind of outline necessarily, or even like a beginning, middle and end pitch, but I kind of generally told him where the tone of it and what I would like to see. Um, and he kind of nodded. He didn't say a whole lot. Uh, I remember he laughed at something I said, and I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, but he, you know, I think he was maybe a little struck by how young and naive I probably came across. <laughs> and I think he asked me if I had an agent. I said no. And he kind of nodded. I think he liked that because uh, he knew he'd probably hire me for cheap. Um, sure. And um, he took the book the the Bible that I had made and he kind of nodded at that and I was out the door. I don't did, think that meeting lasted more than ten minutes. Did he did he keep the Bible? He did. 
oh man, that, that had to make you very nervous because here, here you are, you did all this research and all this work and you're walking out going, I don't know if I'll ever, ever talk to these people again. Oh, absolutely. Oh um, gosh. I didn't know. Um, and I remember walking out of the meeting and driving home feeling very disappointed, like crestfallen would be a good word because I didn't feel like I'd nailed it. I didn't think I impressed him at all. I was just, I was like, Oh my God, I blew it. I just, whatever I said, he just wanted me in and out of there. I just thought, you know, I thought meetings were like an hour long and I was sure. in and out of there in 10 minutes and he just kind of, you know, no, he's just, you know, he wasn't mean. He wasn't, he didn't, again, he didn't roll out the red carpet for me. So, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's almost like when you go into a, something like that you, and you know, in your mind, like what you want to do and what you think you can bring to it. You know, you have that excitement and the person on the other end is kind of like, okay, you know, it's business. It's just, you know, let's um, thank you for coming in and nice to meet you. And we'll take a look at this. And that was that, you know, that's kind of how it went. It was very, um, very brief. Well, I mean, that, that, I mean, it's probably like once I reached out and said, hey, I didn't hear anything back about about the mask thing that, that you helped me get in, get in the door with. And I didn't hear anything back after a certain period of time. It was, it's, you know, I kind of felt like, like when you were describing that, that's kind of exactly how I felt. You know, I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, it was cool that I got a chance to get this far, but, and I'm thankful for those opportunities, but holy shit, man, I was this close, you know? I know. And it's, and there, there is that anticipation. Remember I had had two weeks or so before the meeting to really wind myself up, you know, mentally. And, you know, I just thought I was so prepared and I was going to do this whole song and dance routine for them, which probably would have not gotten me a job. I'm not thinking of it, but I, (laughs) I, uh, I just remember it's that feeling of like, such great anticipation and you're so wound up over it and then it's over and you're like oh well you can breathe but it just doesn't feel great you know you didn't feel like you nailed it you didn't feel like you did what you set out to do so I was really disappointed in myself right I didn't I felt like I didn't you know make an impression whatsoever so I just you know you carry on and uh I carried on for four years before I heard. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Let's so, let's move forward um, just a little sure. bit. We'll just we'll keep this moving down the road. Um, and '93, you had a brief stop where you had a writing credit. Um, yep. Anything uh, that you want to share about that? No, I. It's, it's funny. So for during those those years, um, you know, everybody has a day job, and as you're writing and you're you know you're making your contacts and what have you in the, in the industry, I. I was an assistant at uh, the infamous MPAA, um, which was certainly in those days known as the censors of Hollywood. You know, they would butcher every, pardon the pun, every, especially the horror genre. I mean, they were notorious for, you know, forcing filmmakers to, to cut all the good stuff out of their films. Um, but I worked for them. So it was kind of a fun job in that I got to see a lot of, not a lot, but the movies that the that the Raiders, the ratings board knew that I was interested in, <laughs> they would be like, you know, we're going to be showing Friday the 13th part eight tonight, you know, so you might want right. to come in, you know, and I get to sit and watch the uncut version of whatever, you know, movie was being shown. So, so that was, it was educational, you know, in a way, sure. but also in those few years that I worked there, I, kind of made some friends with the ratings people. So when my movies lit, when later when I was making movies, including Halloween six, they were a little more lenient. I have to say, that's great. You know, there was a little, there was a little nepotism going on. <laughs> sure. Cause like, Oh, it's Dan's name on the, you know, there he is. 
So, so you know, it's got, it was a, it was an odd job for somebody who wanted to make scary movies to to have, mm-hmm. um, especially when I would see these directors come into the office just furious, you know, that that the board was making them cut their movies. Um, and in those days, it was all thirty five millimeter. You know, it was film. It wasn't digital filmmaking yet, so you know, oh, yeah. expensive. Every time I had to go back and make more cuts, and it was just it was a thing. Anyway, so so that's where I was sort of holed up to doing my day job. And one of the um, one of the higher ups in the company, she was just personal friends with a producer, independent producer, who I think it was probably just a dinner or social gathering. And he just happened to mention that he was looking for a writer for a film that he was going to make. Um, and they had a director attached was a choreographer, kind of a hip hop kind of guy named Shabadoo. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they were looking for a writer for this movie. She's like, oh, you know, this young guy works at the office and I think he's really, you know, talented and he's got, you know, great ideas and he's always writing and pitching things and, and he's really, really into it and um, you should meet him. And so he did. And then after that, he hired me to make this, to write the script for this little movie that, that got made and kind of never saw the light of day, but, you know, it was certainly like a first produced credit. Um, so I was really grateful for that opportunity to, to get that first movie made. You know, that's just something that everybody needs to kind of launch their career. And in fact, the movie had Gina Phillips, who I got friendly with on that film. Um, she later went on, she was the sister in, um, Jeepers Creepers. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and Gina did, did this film, it was a cool movie called Rave. And, um, so anyway, so that was that was that film and then it was it was i guess well, w- within the year the halloween six came back to my life yeah that's uh, you know and that's, and that's definitely where w- what my next question is is like 1994 comes along um mm-hmm. obviously i mean we're not going to spend all this time talking about the various pitches that happened in those four years. Uh, but there was a lot of people that were rumored to be attached that were going to be directing that, uh, mm-hmm. rumors of John Carpenter coming back and sending him to space right. and all that yep. stuff. Um, yep. but then all of a sudden 94 now, do you reach out or do you get a phone call if, and, and who called you? What I can remember about that period of time was that I would, I didn't make a test of myself. Let's put it that way. In those, in, the, in that four-year period, I guess it was between the first, you know, I felt like nothing meeting, and then, you know, ultimately when I got called back in, I just kept in touch with them, nice. and I really kind of kept more in touch with Malik. You know, Mustafa was not the one that I would be able to just get on the phone, but Malik Akkad, who's my age, would always take my call, and he was always friendly to me. Uh, probably thought I was a pest, but he. I always wrote him a letter, you know, to just every, you know, and it wasn't like a constant thing. It was maybe once or twice a year, you know, I'd check in, where are you guys at? You know, I'm, you know, just letting you know I'm here, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I know when we had the earthquake in 1994, I remember talking to him about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we just kind of kept in touch and it's not like we became best friends or anything, but we were of the same age. And I think, just was he just was open to me as you know and i think malik's kind of still that way he can you know he, he can kind of at times i know not so much of you <laughs> he ran into some roadblocks but i don't think that was for the reason that he didn't like your work at all no no and no and, and other and, people involved exactly he, and that's he's always sort business. of had a you know i think he always understood that there 
that this means something to people more than just the business side of it that his father saw and controlled at the time. Um, I think he saw the potential in that's word is, is in, in including the fans, including the, you know, kind of like creating a community around it, you know, cause he understood that there was such a, a fan base, even though we were pre, you know, really internet at the time, you know, there sure. just wasn't that kind of social media, there's certainly no social media, but even internet was just a brand new, barely, you know, anybody had it or was using it. Um, and if anything it was like that horrible dial up, you know, <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> Prodigy, yeah. CompuServe, you know, it was like, we were probably in the infancy of all of that. Um, Absolutely. but anyway, so Malik always was, re- all I just say is he was responsive to me. He never didn't return my call or he didn't, ignore my letter. He would kind of, you know, just say, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll let you know, you know, he, he kept the door open enough so that it, it made it like, well then, you know, I'll put it on and I'll, I'll, I'll reach him in another six months. But in the meantime, I do remember working where I was working, we would get the trades every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them was, you know, probably variety or Hollywood reporter. And I remember, I think somebody put it on my desk and it said a big headline, Miramax acquires rights to Halloween. Some, you know, that was essentially the gist of the headline. And, you know, and it was talking about this new genre label, Dimension Films and the Weinsteins and Disney was involved in, you know, as a parent company. And I just remember thinking, well, I'm dead in the water. Like, there's no way I'm ever going to get, you know, this is now this is becoming something. This is like corporate big, now. This is corporate. It's exactly yeah. it. No, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> this is no longer an independent film. It is a, it is a studio film. Absolutely. So, and I, I just, you know, again, that crestfallen, like, well, you know, I tried and okay, well, you know, all right. You know, I just kind of let it, you know, you, sometimes you, you let go, you let God and you, you know, you just move on and you just, you know, you just got to let go. So that's what I was doing. And, um, uh, I had done and, um, it was in, I want to say May of 1994, uh, yep. our office had been relocated to Burbank because it had essentially collapsed in the, in the Northridge earthquake earlier that year. So we were kind of in very temporary quarters, um, kind of like, you know, borrowed office space from like Columbia pictures, (laughs) you know? And so, but I remember I I got a call at the office and it, and it was from Mustafa's assistant and it was like, he needs to speak to you. I was like, what? <laughs> Talk about and, filling your shorts moment right there. Oh yeah, totally. And I just froze. And um it suddenly he's on the phone with me. Wow. He's like, you know, I have always remembered you. And I think he probably mentioned something about his son. He was like, you know, he tells me you're in touch. So if you are interested, <laughs> you know, come in and I want to talk to you. Uh, we need to we need to get going on this. Wow. And I'm like, what? Uh, so, yeah. And he set a meeting, I want to say, within the next, you know, probably sometime that week. It wasn't long. It was a couple of days. Wow. And by that time, they had, they had moved offices um, to Century City and, you know, one of those sky, skyscrapers, semi-sized skyscrapers in, in Century City. And they were, you know, they had office space there. The company was smaller because Galaxy had um, had folded. So they were just Trankus. Um but I went in and I remember meeting in the, in the room and, and it was most of his office and Malik had a little side office, you know, the kind of the one with no windows and, and uh, I love you know, those. He's young and 
he was just, you know, he was young, like me, young and, you know, kind of earning his own stripes at the time. Um, yeah. Doing stuff, you know, like an office worker would do, you know, taking care of details. Um, so anyway, but I remember going into the meeting uh, and it was Mustafa at the same kind of on the other end of the desk with the pipe and Malik and a guy who I'd known his name but never met was Paul Freeman, the producer of Halloween 4. Mm-hmm. And I sat in this meeting for, I think that one went on a while. That was a good half hour, 45 minutes or so. You're like, but I remember that. You're like, this is more like it. <laughs> this is more like it. This is what I thought that happened the first time. It only took you four years to call me back. Um, but I remember the look on all their faces. <laughs> it was oh, like, boy. no, it was literally because I was still young. You know, I was like yeah. 24. And yeah. they're like, I just remember Freeman had like one eyebrow raised the whole time. Like, who the hell is this kid? <laughs> like, like, they're talking to, you know, guys in their 30s, 40s, probably. And, you know, you know, the long list of people that they were. Oh, yes. I talked to and commissioned yeah. different scripts that just didn't didn't work out for one reason or another. But so here I am as this kid. And and the funny thing that, that and the thing that struck me most was. Most of the first thing he does is he picks up the, the Bible that I made for him four years prior. And he goes and there it is on his desk. Were you shocked was, that you he know, still had that, by the way? Yeah, I was shocked. I was like almost blown out of my chair. And he and he holds it up and he's like, oh, yeah, we use this all the time. This is wow. kind of like you, you, you basically like I wrote the manual for them. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> like the company, you know, here it is. Here's like the, it was like the, 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 the how to, you know, uh, make a Halloween movie, you know, in 50 pages. Yeah, it was this document or this this piece of whatever that they. He's like, yeah, I've had this ever since. This is fantastic. You know, this is great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for doing all the homework. Wow. Um, so I don't know how many people they made copies of and passed it on to, but I was, listen, I wasn't, I was, I was blown away and I was thrilled that they paid any attention to it and that it was there, you know, that was still there. It was just weird seeing it after so much time. And the fact that he had kept it as a resource, um, even if he was talking to other writers, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe he felt indebted to this kid who had like done all this work for free. <laughs> we got to give him a meeting. <laughs> or maybe, you know, you, because you had all that, all that research done and then all these people mm-hmm. are coming in, shooting him off to space, making him a homeless man. And, you know, right. all this random right. bullshit. Yep. Maybe they said, that's not Halloween. This guy's got at least the tone of everything. We yep. probably need to hear what he would actually do. Because if I recall from what you said earlier, is there wasn't a real like direction at that point. So how did your how did your pitch of what you would do with Halloween six and like in that first meeting differ from the second meeting? It's I mean, obviously you had four years to think about it or maybe you yeah. didn't anymore. So how did that change? Well, um, you know, I remember one of the first things I, that was probably coming out of my mouth that I got cut off about was the words Jamie Lee Curtis. What'd you think of that ending, Dylan? Fuck you. Oh, man, if you said anything else, I would have failed at my job to build suspense. Because I won't lie. I won't lie to you because I I listened to the interview on my lunch break at work. And I I was watching the countdown, you know, with like 20 seconds left to go. I'm like, is he just going to cut this in the middle, uh, you know, uh, and abruptly end it like an episode of The Sopranos? I'm like, what's he going to end this with? And when he said those three words... Jamie Lee Curtis, and then it was it. I literally, if there was a table, I would have flipped it. I was like, God damn it, Chris, it's brilliant, but I hate you. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I, and I wish I could say that 
I had this idea when I was figuring out where the cut point was, but I didn't know that it was going to be a part one cut point because by the time we were doing all this last week and we had already spent uh, a total of four hours on the phone because we had an hour beforehand that we prepped before we did anything. So I had no idea how long we were going, but when he said Jamie Lee Curtis, I said, that's going to be a cut point somewhere. I just didn't know where. So when we got to, I'm going back through listening to the interview and I heard that I'm like, this is a good time frame for, uh, for part one. And then to get your message that you said, I was like, that's awesome. You know, I wouldn't expected anything at less than fuck you. So again, I appreciate that. Oh man. That was a tremendous part one. And I'm not trying to, you know, blow smoke up your or Dan's ass, but I mean, Oh man, where do I even start? You know, the Halloween Bible. I mean, I, I, I need to know the answer and I can't wait for the next part of this. Whatever happened to it, you know, did he get it back? Does Malik still have it? You know, what was it used for 2018? What was, you know, did, was it added on to how many people got one? If there were copies made, I mean, that, that, that could be, you know, I could be here forever talking about that, but I'm really curious about him working for the MPAA because in the late 80, mid late eighties, you know, they were heavily known for ruining movies with their over censorship of things all the way, even into the early nineties. And I think, right around the time of Halloween six is when they started to get lenient again. I always just wondered what it was about that 10 year period, you know, from like 86 to like 94 of them being super harsh on horror movies, you know, cutting out all the good stuff. What was their deal? And what was it that made them kind of lighten up? And even if maybe Dan had something to do with it, I don't know. Um, I know that, um, when the producers cut, I mean, I, you know, have, have you seen the producers cut by the way? Yes. Okay. Um, so if you watch that one, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward, you know, like less gore type movie, but the theatrical cut obviously is over the top and blood everywhere. Body counts galore. If I had to guess a lot of the MPAA, um, stuff probably came with the leniency with the reshoot maybe they already knew what they could get away with and what they couldn't um who knows and i really because you know and i touched about this in the middle point about the the huge gap in between dan's initial meeting with mustafa and then you know in 93 94 him getting that call around the time that you know miramax stepped in and you know got all corporate and such you know about the studio impact on his vision, and, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, you know, in the future parts about how, you know, I know he was staying in touch with with Malik and such, you know, every six months through, you know, those years, but how he stayed at the top of the list, you know, uh, you know, of course his passion showed through, but I just wonder how many other writers they talked to in the early '90s, you know, about writing and 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 how he was ultimately chosen over everyone else. Um. You know that, and that's a great question. I I do know for a fact that uh, Quentin Tarantino um, was did something. John Carpenter had a pitch. There were several different writers uh, that they met with over the years, and then of course uh, that it was it was due to the legal issues uh, over the rights of the franchise and the distribution end of it. 
And then finally, when it came down to Miramax or New Line, um, it's ultimately what what kind of put put the wheels in motion to get the cameras rolling at that point. I just you know, in, in, I'm sure you guys talked about this. I just always wanted wondered what you know what Dan's original vision would have been like on screen because you know what we got was already so good but just to see what you know what he had envisioned and, and what you know what he could have even seen farther into the future of the franchise on, on future installments because you know the halloween series has always been kind of lackadaisic with its consistency as far as writers and directors and story and all that you know just to have a consistent here's where we are here's where we're going and then we're going to stay there kind of thing you know and, and now we kind of have that with the Halloween 2018 kills and ends trilogy. It's it's just bad storytelling. It's just but consistent. You know, I want to have good consistent storytelling. What you just brought up, Dan answers all those questions for sure. Um, there was future plans, and there was there was a lot of consideration about where where the franchise was going to go, and you know him coming back. So. We, we do cover that, so I mean, definitely, if people like this first part, um, which I hope they do, that they'll check out part two and ultimately part three. I'm looking at this as a trilogy, may bleed into a fourth one, I don't know. And that's what this was always meant to be, is, you know, you know, you, like, like, I, whenever time I do an interview on the cutting room floor, and I'm sure when you do, you don't want to copy and paste an interview, you know, like, like when someone's doing a press run, has the same you know, 10 questions and the same 10 answers over and over again. We want to make this different. We want, and you know, in this interview, Dan's answering questions. He's never been asked on, 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 on audio or video before. And, you know, he's getting, giving us details. He's never given anyone that you're not going to find on some commentary anywhere. So, I mean, just the opportunity for the, for this is, you know, just outstanding. All right, brother. Well, do you have anything else or can we uh, let everyone go? with the Jamie Lee Curtis. No, I think that's a good place to leave off. You know, class is dismissed. Everyone do your homework and I want those term papers in by, by on my desk by tomorrow. Well, it was great, man. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk to everybody next week. Thanks for listening to Halloween Unleashed featuring the cutting room floor. Be sure to follow us at anchor.fm slash Halloween Unleashed and on our official Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups slash Halloween Unleashed. For all video versions of the cutting room floor, please visit youtube.com slash user slash DylanCloud97 and subscribe. Be sure to share our episodes on social media and we'll be back next week with an all new episode.